a discussion about a lesser-known unit involved in the 1993 Battle of Mogadishu, also known as the Black Hawk Down Incident. Good morning, early birds. I'm Jonathan Lairfeld, and this is the Early Bird Brief, produced by Defense News and Military Times. Today, I talked with Military Times editor-at-large, Todd South, about the less-recognized 3rd Platoon from the Battle of Mogadishu. We discussed why they may be less well-known, and what's happened to the service members since. So, Todd, you interviewed a unit from a rather significant battle a few decades ago. Can you set the stage for us? What transpired during the Battle of Mogadishu for those less familiar? So that battle, um, which is very significant and consequential, we'll talk more about that. There was some extreme famine and starvation going on um, in, in Somalia. Uh, the, the capital of Mogadishu, of course, was a center of a lot of those uh, actions. Warlords um, kind of fighting for control and power within the country and using really food as a weapon. Um, I mean, the population was starving. You know, thousands were dying. And the United States, actually, uh, President H.W. Bush signed off on sending troops over uh, before he lost the election to President Clinton. Uh, Marines went in, uh, stabilized the area in 1992. A U.N. peacekeeping mission then coincided with that. Um, It was later called Operation Restore Hope. That uh, evolved into Operation Continue Hope over the course of the next year. At the same time as that U.N. mission was going on, involving predominantly United States, Malaysian, and Pakistani soldiers, um, just doing peacekeeping uh, efforts, which were fairly limited because the U.N. is very um, tied to their protocols and limited in what engagements they get involved with, the United States began what was called Operation Gothic Serpent. And Gothic Serpent involved primarily Delta Force operators and U.S. Army Rangers, the elite of the Army, uh, those two units, going into Mogadishu to hunt down the uh, uh, warlord Muhammad Farid Adid and his lieutenants, who were really some of the, the main actors within a lot of the uh, starvation in the Civil War. And they were going into this very densely populated, not very friendly areas and trying to capture those people and bring some kind of stability to things at the same time as the UN was delivering humanitarian aid and food and trying to protect different areas. A lot of people know about what the Rangers, Delta Force, and pilots did during the Battle of Mogadishu because of the book and film, but why don't they know about 3rd Platoon? Well, it's a, it's a kind of a strange mix of just standard good fashioned military bureaucracy and, and, and a couple other factors. So, you know, when the, the UN mission actually was supported primarily by a, the bulk of the soldiers were coming out of the 10th Mountain Division out of Fort Drum, New York. And these are highly trained um, infantry soldiers, not special operations, but they have a, a lot of great training and one of the mo- most highly deployed units and divisions of the Army um, at that time and since. That, that task force called 214, which was primarily from the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 14th Infantry Regiment out of 10th Mountain Division, was formed to go support the UN mission. They then, of course, did some support operations for the Delta and the Rangers, but it wasn't a, wasn't a full task force. So basically, and this tends to happen more than people think, think, um, they pulled a, a, a platoon from a separate company out of the 87th Infantry Regiment. Um, so that was 3rd Platoon, uh, Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 87th Infantry Regiment, also 10th Mountain Division, but a whole separate unit. And it was just one platoon of about 40 soldiers, pretty much hand-selected. They got about, I think, two or three weeks' notice before they were told, hey, you're, you're, you're going over to Somalia. In fact, these guys were dismounted infantry troops, um, you know, trained, you know, some new soldiers, some more experienced, but 
They'd never done vehicle operations. They were getting you know, vehicle, new vehicles, new Humvees at the time. Those were a new addition to the, the military. They were getting new weapons, the Mark 19 40 millimeter grenade launcher, which has proved itself well over the last 30 years, but was brand new at the, at the end of the time in the Army. They were still carrying machine guns, actually, from the Vietnam era, the M60. Um, so they cobbled those guys together, this third platoon, and said, okay, you're going to attach to the task force, and you're going to go to Somalia here in the next two or three weeks, and you're going to spend the next six months or so on this on this deployment. Basically, it's just providing security, route security. Um, they expected to probably see some some level of combat, but nothing super intense at the time. And things weren't really that hectic for American forces uh, at the time. Um, so really what happens, the reason I kind of got overlooked was just the bureaucracy of that. You know, they didn't have a high-ranking commanding officer overseeing them directly. They were kind of, they were housed at the Mogadishu University separate from a lot of the task force and separate still from the Delta and the Rangers who were in different locations. So they were kind of um, the orphan group, so to speak, of, of the unit that was just tasked out with different missions to support the larger task force, which then supported the Delta and the Rangers. So they were kind of like third-part players. But as you were about to talk about, they saw a lot more than a lot of people um, still to this day don't know about. And maybe people who served in Mogadishu don't realize just how much these guys did. How'd you find out about 3rd Platoon? Uh, just one of those strange reporter things. Sometimes you, you, you write a story about one thing and people contact you about something related or, or totally different. So I, you know, I, I served in the, in the Marine Corps, enlisted, um, went overseas. I served from 98 to 2003, uh, many, you know, number of years after this, but overlapped with the release of the book, overlapped with the release of the film. The book came out in 1999, Black Hawk Down by Mark Bowden, a seminal work in military reporting, a very good book, uh, very well researched and, and detailed, although it Obviously, didn't mention much about this unit or anything, really. Um, but you know, can't include everybody always. And he had to have a focus, I'm sure. And then, of course, the film version in 2001 came out. was big hit. Still to this day, watched by a lot of military folks. Very accurate in its portrayal of urban combat and firefights, those types of things. I had read the book. Um, you know, many years ago, I had seen the film multiple times, and I didn't know, I knew very little about the 10th Mountain Division's role, which was a larger role than you you really see if you if you see the film. It's very, there are very limited references to 10th Mountain Division, and I knew nothing about uh, Third Platoon. So about uh, two or three years ago, there was a series of medal and a valor award upgrades for a lot of the uh, participants, uh, the soldiers, uh, Delta and Rangers and others, pilots who fought and some who died uh, in, in the Battle of Mogadishu. Many of them, I think there were around 60 or so Valor Awards initially put out, um, a lot of bronze stars, a, a couple medals of honor, um, some silver stars, other, other, other devices. Those were um, upgraded in 2021, and again, a couple others were upgraded in 2022, many of them to, I think it was 58 silver star medals, which for those who aren't familiar, that's the third highest Valor Award you can receive. It's very, very honorable. People can go an entire career and never see a Silver Star Medal on their on their chest, and you go to combat many times and never receive that award. Others were um, upgraded to the Distinguished Service Cross or Distinguished Flying Cross, which is the number two, like the only one just right below the Medal of Honor. And I got I got actually members of Third Platoon, some veterans who you know been out of the military for decades, reached out and said, "Hey, um, you've written about this, but do you know anything about Third Platoon?" And coincidentally, I had done a, a story a couple years before about a documentary that released really detailing Task Force 214, um, which, which I've mentioned. That is the original task force that supported the UN and supported Delta Rangers out of 10th Mountain, which the third platoon was a part of, but not necessarily a, a major part. They were kind of an outlier used for different types of security ops. 
that task force documentary was done specifically, it's funny, to correct the record and make sure that people knew about what Task Force 214 did because you know they were a major element in going in and, and then rescuing the Rangers and the Delta Force operators um, when they got trapped in Mogadishu after two Blackhawks were shot down during a, a, a snatch-and-grab hostage-taking uh, miss, mission by the Delta and the Rangers. So that whole documentary, which I'd covered a couple years ago when it was released and interviewed soldiers and and, and the filmmakers about that. That documentary doesn't mention Third Platoon at all either. So I think between the book, the film, the Valor Awards, the separate documentary, and then later Valor Award upgrades, um, the Third Platoon guys, at least some of them, were just like, what in the world? I mean, we were there, you know, they they, they were saying you know, they'd fought you know, multiple engagements ahead of the Blackhawk crashes and the rescue, and they just still never saw any um, any recognition at all. Uh, just as a just as a as a, as a highlight, um, you know. There was, uh, you know, these guys got in country in July of 1993. They, you know, immediately started doing security patrols, quick reaction forces. They were doing everything from uh, guarding engineers from warthogs to doing a security supply routes, you know, nighttime patrols, daytime patrols. Um, they actually experienced a major four-hour uh, firefight on September 13th, probably some of the most um, action anyone had seen since the Persian Gulf or maybe before. Uh, most, most people in the Army at that time hadn't, you know, had a lot of combat action. And then on the September 25th, you know, about a week or more before the infamous Black Hawk Down crashes involving the Delta and the Rangers, there was a, a, another, what they call the first Black Hawk Down. A Black Hawk was shot down by RPGs um, over the city. One of the uh, squads went in uh, from 3rd Platoon, went in and spent about six hours overnight battling through. They took two casualties. One man was, uh, one soldier was paralyzed for life. They uh, retrieved three bodies from the crash. Unfortunately, three of the air crew members died in the crash. Uh, the co-pilot and co-pilot had actually gotten out uh, before they got there and hid uh, before they were rescued. Uh, just a quick side note, the pilot and co-pilot were injured in the crash and did, again, were able to escape and, and find cover and concealment and defend themselves before they were retrieved. But the, the, the pilot fought off a couple of, I think, two or three Somali uh, fighters who were rushing the aircraft and rushing he and his wounded co-pilot. He fought him off with a pistol uh, over the course of a couple hours. He received the Silver Star Medal for those actions. The men who came and rescued him saw nothing. So can you tell us more about what 3rd Platoon did during their mission? Strangely enough, you know, they're they're kind of waiting on call, like most quick reaction forces are doing in any type of military operation. They're actually, um, on the afternoon of, of October 3rd, um, when the Rangers and Delta are, are flying in to go try to capture these warlords' lieutenants in the middle of a very dense market in Mogadishu, when, when those guys are going in there, um, third platoon, you know, most of them are on, on a rest cycle. They're like rest, refit, kind of, you know, on call. And they're having a volleyball tournament at the, at the university, you know, um, just kind of, you know, passing the time, you know, you know over the afternoon, uh, they, you know, uh, put all their stuff together, ready it for the night, you know, that, that the, the, the night's patrol that they're going to have to go on and get a little challenge or to get some rest and they get the call, boom, they got to go. They rush in, you know, task force 214 has already, um, gone into the city and is trying desperately to reach the Rangers in the Delta that um, early, you know, that late afternoon, early evening after the two uh, Blackhawks are shot down and they know they have dead and wounded in the city and the Rangers and the and the Delta are there on basically on foot. They can't really get vehicles to them because the Somalis have set up, um, and many who've seen the film or read the book would know these details. They've set up barricades street after street after street. Like they've just blocked off entire areas. They're burning tires to signal, you know, helicopters coming in. They're launching RPGs. They've got everything staked out. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a sniper's nest of, uh, you know, AK-47 fire coming from all directions. 
So, you know, the, the, the third platoon guys, you know, come in once they get the call, they, you know, build up a huge convoy, they go over to a port area where they stage before they start entering the, ci entering the city. Um, and I remember an um, interesting anecdote, they had a rules of engagement. So rules of engagement for the non-military crowd is basically what you can and can't do, you know, you, you have to, you know, wait to be, wait to fire until fired upon in certain circumstances, um, or you're only allowed to uh, do certain actions in certain areas until, unless given other orders or unless you're in danger. That's pretty standard across most, definitely UN missions and most US missions, you know, there's always rules of engagement. And one of the guys I interviewed from the, uh, the 40 man platoon uh, of of third platoon, you know, he'd been on a few missions uh, over the course of this deployment, and you know, they had their rules of engagement (ROE). He had a copy of them in his breast pocket of his camouflage, you know, uniform. He's waiting there on his gun. He sees a colonel walk by and just kind of casually says, "Hey, sir, what's the what's the uh, rules of engagement uh, on tonight's mission?" Because they didn't really know what they were heading into yet. Um, and the colonel turns to him and says, "Oh, son, there are no rules of engagement. If it moves, shoot it." And that gave those guys a signal that this is going to be a little different maybe than, than the past uh, few weeks' worth of, of patrols. So, you know, they hit into the city. Again, they're hitting barricade after barricade. They finally find a break, an opening to get through. Of course, every lane, every alleyway that is open to get to the Rangers and the Delta guys is just lined with, you know, hundreds of Somali fighters um, throughout the course of the night. They spend six hours battling through one Mark 19 gunner. I'll tell you this, he, he fires the Mark 19, which is a 40 millimeter grenade launcher. He went through 14 cases of ammunition. Yeah, that's a little thousand rounds. I mean, there might be guys who, who their whole job is to shoot the Mark 19 and they wouldn't shoot that many rounds in an entire four-year enlistment. Just, to, just to, And that's in training. <laughs> so just to give you an, an idea of the intensity of the fight, it's about a six-hour gun battle, I think, uh, over the course, just to get to maybe three, three to six hours, I think, is the, is the, is the positions they have to get to. There's two different craft sites, and they you know, sit down security while the other guys you know, tear apart the helicopters and retrieve the bodies of the, of the dead crew uh, before they're able to then start to try to, try to fight their way out. Um, and, and, and get out of the city. And so they go pretty much late afternoon, all, all evening, all night into the morning hours before they're able to get the bodies out and get the surviving the rangers loaded into the Humvees, many of them wounded, and, and, and haul them out of the city into safety. What is it that prevented 3rd Platoon from being recognized or being recommended for medals or other honors? Well, based on the interviews I've done with you know the members of the unit, um, they had a you know, they had a, an interesting setup. As, as I've said earlier, they were attached to a unit that wasn't their direct command. Um, the highest ranking person they had in their formation um, was uh, a, a second lieutenant who was, you know, you know, a year and a year, maybe two into the army. Um, you know, he was doing his best to run run this platoon in a, in a combat scenario, and but he doesn't have a lot of rank. You know, so when the dust settles. And they're writing up, you know, after action reviews uh, and recommendations for things like that. He's he's basically told by the commander um, of the task force, you get your unit, your guys get get one valor award. You can do one write up. And I'll be honest, you know, I've not been involved in the writing of valor awards ever. I was enlisted. Um, you know, I've seen them awarded, but I'm not sure why that was the case. And to this day, a lot of the guys can't understand why. You know, 40 guys who fought over the course of you know, multiple combat engagements and some of the most intense fighting scenes since Vietnam were given a quota, basically, uh, to write for one battle award. A specialist, Arthur Houston, he was um, a driver on one of the Humvees on the, on the rescue to uh, Mogadishu. One of his fellow soldiers got shot and went down in the middle of the line of fire. He's basically in a kill zone. He, you know... Hits, you know, gets shocked, in shock basically for a few seconds, but then realizes got to do something. So he runs out under a hail of bullets, pulls this guy to safety, essentially saves his life, um, gets that guy loaded, 
um, onto a onto a, a medical a, an ambulance and, and transported out. He was written for that Bronze Star Medal with the again a common award for a lot of combat actions. Um, um, if, if if there's valor present or valor, valor witnessed. However, that was downgraded um, from a Bronze Star Medal uh, with V to an Army Combination Medal with V. To be frank, an, a Combination Medal it's it's good. Um, people have done done well with that. But take away the V, and, and you can get that for a, a high physical fitness school. Uh, you, you can get that for you know doing a great job with inventory if you're a supply sergeant. I think most soldiers would tell you an ARCOM, as they call them, or Army Combination Medal, while while definitely appreciated, is nothing along the scale or, or the level of even a Bronze Star with V or, or higher with the Silver Stars and, and, and above and beyond. Um, and they're just numbers and numbers and numbers of instances in which this platoon on that on, the, on that night and on separate you know preceding missions did what by any standard you could kind of stack them up side by side with stuff you saw in Iraq and Afghanistan over these last 20 years and it's it's almost word for word kind of descriptions you might see in a, a bronze star or silver star medal citation um, or even a unit citation I mean a unit itself um, just of all, all the missions they did you might receive a unit citation so I just want to lay that out to see kind of what the process was uh, for folks the reason they didn't get any more, again, I think it comes down to they just didn't have a good advocate. They didn't have anybody higher than a second lieutenant, you know, kind of pounding on the door saying, hey, these guys deserve some recognition. And, you know, when they got home in December of that year, they um, they went back to 10th Mountain Division, went back to their company and regiment. Well, their company commander had, had gone on. He had moved on to another duty station, had a new company commander. This this commander doesn't know them, uh, doesn't know what they've gone through. I mean, he saw CNN and what happened with, with the Black Hawk Down stuff, but to be frank, and like a lot of people have told me this, and I've, I've seen this in other write-ups, Army was not super uh, proud of what happened with Black Hawk Down. I mean, of course, they were proud of the soldiers and the actions they took, but there are also some key mistakes made that, frankly, got some people killed. And what's happened to the 3rd Platoon veterans since 1993? So starting in 2021, um, you know, one of one of their members, um, Lieutenant Colonel John Supernowitz, he was a, a young enlisted, brand new into the Army, a, a part of a part of Charlie Cummings, part of 3rd Platoon. He was part of that deployment. He, you know, reached out, you know, after those Valor Awards upgrades for the other soldiers, the Rangers and Delta, and reached out to 10th Mountain and said, hey, you know, this is a platoon. You guys might not know about them. Um, you know, they, they they easily deserve some recognition or at least deserve to be included. Um, just as a, as a note, 10th Mountain Division, you know, years ago started their own kind of recognition ceremony to honor, you know, historical events within the division. Um, they have highlighted the role of Task Force 214 in Mogadishu uh, over a course of a number of years. They do a Mogadishu Mile or Mog Mile run every year around the anniversary. That's to kind of commemorate the last um, soldiers who had to leave the city running behind Humvees and um, armored personnel carriers on foot because all the vehicles were so overloaded with wounded they couldn't fit any more people on them. And it's also featured in the film. People, I'm sure, remember that if they've seen the film. And so they do a commemorative kind of Mogadishu Mile run. They talk about Task Force 214. They really never, never, even then, even the unit, even the home division of this unit never really mentioned Charlie Company 3rd Platoon at all until about a year ago in 2022. They added them to the official uh, division history with a mention in the re readout of what happened in those commemorative ceremonies. And then this past year, uh, in October, on the 30th anniversary, they held a somewhat uh, formal informal ceremony in which they invited as many members of the platoon who would like to attend to a kind of a recognition ceremony on the anniversary on October 3rd. Um, this is this year in, in 2023. And uh, around two dozen, about 25 of the of the guys showed up. So some have passed on. Some are kind of out of contact. Others could, really couldn't travel. But about 25 of the original 40 members came, and um, they were honored by their the current 3rd um, Platoon Charlie Company, 1st uh, of the 87th 
um, you know, there at 10th Mountain. Uh, they had a little flyover. A lot of vets, you know, of the, of the unit I've been interviewing over the course of the last, you know, year or two said that that right there, just seeing those Blackhawks, seeing like their old unit, going back to their old base, uh, I'm sorry, their old, old post, and um, and talking with, with these new soldiers was 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 a good, a good bit of recognition. They also gave them, just again, a side note for Army folks, they gave them, um, they presented them with their combat infantry badges, which is basically the badge you receive if you're an infantryman who then sees combat. Um, and that's, again, a strange thing. A lot of these guys didn't even get their, what they call CIBs, the combat infantry badge. They didn't even get that um, at the time. Some, some did, but for some reason, just paperwork, shuffle, people moving, leaving units. Many of them never got that. Or if they did, they were just kind of handed it. There was no ceremony. And that's a big deal. You know, if you're, if you're an infantryman, um, you know, there was a time, especially when they were in, where you could go a whole 20 years and never even have an opportunity to earn a combat infantry badge. Um, so they were, they were rare back then. They're less rare now with the, the post 9-11 wars, but they're still considered a high honor. And you know, having that, you know, shows that someone's, you know, been in combat, um, which is, again, is, is, is a point of pride for a lot of folks in the infantry and the combat arms. So they had that ceremony. Um, that was uh, then again, this just this past October 3rd. Um, they had that recognition on the anniversary, and that's kind of where it stands right now. Is there anything that can be done beyond the ceremony that was held in October? Can the Army review what happened and still recommend honors for this unit? Yes, the Army could absolutely review this. Um, in fact, there's been some some discussions that I'm, I've been a little privy to, can't talk, to talk about who, but, um, you know, about you know, getting a review of this. The, 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 the sticky point is you need witness statements, you need new information that wasn't originally submitted, and since nothing was really submitted because there was only one Valor Award, I mean, pretty much everything would be new. So you need you know, witness statements from soldiers who participated in the action, soldiers who um, witnessed others perform Valorous acts, um, of course, documentation showing people were in the units. Um, so all that needs to be submitted. I believe you know, folks are gathering some of that up on the, on the, on the veteran side. Um, and, and trying to get that through the process. They do need an advocate, though, um, just like just like the first time. Uh, a second lieutenant won't do. They they need a pretty much to get the award uh, citations and the review that they're looking for. They need a colonel or above to come in, kind of basically sponsor this review, uh, you know, recommend that the process go forward, and then that paperwork process can go. They can collect all their statements, and then the Army um, you know, can review that and decide whether or not to issue uh, valor awards of any kind uh, or to, or to deny, um, deny the, uh, the, the request. Um, it's again, back to being kind of a paperwork battle there and seeing kind of what is going to come forward. Um, a lot of it, you know, would really rely on the 10th mountain division. <laughs> the commanding general of 10th mountain division could essentially just say, look, I'm ordering a review. These guys did this, this is documented here, here, and here. And look, we just had this ceremony and could order that review and just ask for submissions of paperwork and documentation. And that could be reviewed, you know, shortly, really. Um, it's just a matter of you know, them taking that action, taking it up, um, and, and going through the process. That's it for us this morning. To get more of the top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com EBB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on social media at defense underscore news and at military times. This episode of the Early Bird Brief was hosted and produced by me, Jonathan Lairfeld. If you enjoyed our conversation today, be sure to check out Todd's work at militarytimes.com. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Gruss. Have a great day.